Welcome to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. Really excited to bring you this next interview. I had a chat with Jack Carr, author of The Terminal List and True Believer. Now, Jack is one of my favorite authors, and you're going to notice that I kind of fanboyed out here and there. I apologize for that. Jack is also a former Navy SEAL, and he continues to give back through telling his stories and through organizations that he supports. So the two organizations that we chat about later on in the podcast is the UDT SEAL Museum and the National Ability Center. So on behalf of the Protectors Podcast, I'll be donating $50 to both of those organizations. So please check them out. And welcome to the Protectors. Hey, I'd like to welcome Jack to the Protectors Podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Now, this is a, a very momentous occasion for me because not only do I have an awesome guest, but I'm, a, I'm like a big fanboy of your series. So, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so much. I love hearing that. So I'm like, wow, Jack Carr is coming on. This is going to be the best thing ever. I am fired up and I'm so glad that you enjoyed the first novels. Yeah, definitely. I am. Uh, I'm just getting into the second one. So it's, it's going to be a little while before I, I write any reviews or anything on that. I appreciate it, though. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to finish up the third one today and get that off to the New York publisher because uh, I leave for Siberia tomorrow um, and do some research over there for uh, that I'll weave into the edits of book three. So although it'll be done, I'll still have until October to uh, to really finish it up and weave in some of that local flavor, kind of like I did with the second one, True Believer, that you're reading. I went to Mozambique and then South Africa. And uh, nice. then some of that local flavor, like a local beer and get to ask the, the locals how, uh, what Chinese influence is like in the area, legal and illegal mining operations, that sort of thing. So, uh, it really added a lot to that second book. So, um, looking forward to doing that in Siberia with this, uh, with this third one. Well, that's one thing I have to say, cause you and I talked real, real quick about before we started this about living in San Diego and in the first book, I'm like, I could totally picture where everything's at. Yeah. So if if you're not a big fan of Jack Carr yet, uh, the first book was Terminal, The Terminalist, and it's it's spot on. And you could tell that uh, it took a lot of work to get so much detail into it. And it's not just hey, it's not just spitting out books to spit out books. It's like, damn, this is really good. I appreciate it. It's something I've wanted to do since I was a little kid, since I was uh, about the same time I knew I wanted to be a SEAL. I also knew that one day I wanted to write fiction just like this. And uh, having lived in San Diego for uh, quite a bit of the time that, uh, that I was in the military, obviously everyone starts there if you're going to be a SEAL at uh, BUDS in Coronado there, right off San Diego. And then my first SEAL team happened to be in San Diego as well, uh, at Team 5. Uh, if we did do a little time in the East Coast at SEAL Team 2, uh, but finished up in San Diego at Team 7. So I started writing the novel while I was there in San Diego. So I lived that area for so long and it had been just such a part of our lives and part of obviously SEAL uh, culture for the longest of time. So it, uh, it naturally made its way into the story almost as a character, kind of like, kind of like a car does, kind of like I use the different weapons to, uh, it's not just a weapon that I thought it'd be cool to use. Each one uh, helps develop 
a certain character. So I kind of think that's a, a, a hallmark of the novels and will be going forward as well. You know, that's a great point because Coronado actually did feel like a character. Because, you know, I worked down by um, San Ysidro area, which is near Coronado. And, you know, every two or three weeks we'd head over to Coronado for chow because, you know what, you got to get away from the border once in a while. And it's like Coronado felt, it felt like, well, you know, listening to the book because I'm a huge Audible fan and it felt like I was there. So that's, it's just great, man. I love it. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, people are loving the audiobooks. Uh, Ray Porter does the narration and he's doing the second one as well. He's a great guy. But uh, yeah, I know San Ysidro well. I did a uh, Border Patrol tracking course back in, geez, 2000, and I'm going to say nine or 10, something like that. But uh, what, what's the uh, the Special Operations Border Patrol unit oh, called? Oh, Bortac or Borsar? Yep, yep Bortac. Yeah. Did it with those guys. And wow, that was an eye-opening experience to, uh, to go out there. <laughs> and some of that stuff that I learned there in that, that tracking course with those guys uh, and wound up in the, in the novels as well. So I forget exactly where I used it, but just learning how uh, just uh, human traffickers move people across that border and then how they yep. things to throw off uh, trackers and just how, how they've adapted to our technology. And uh, it, it was amazing. It was incredible to spend some time out there on the ground with those guys because um, we were doing a course, but at the same time, we're doing that course in the area where people are moving back and forth across the border. Um, so it's, uh, it wasn't just like a, a sterile environment that you're trying to uh, you know, pick up and go somewhere else and apply what you learned, like say in Washington state to the, the mountains of Afghanistan or something. Um, it was, you're doing that course in the area where they're working each and every day. So it was a unique experience and very cool. Yeah. You never know what you're going to run into. Fortunately, I was, uh, when I was border patrol, I was with a station called Brownfield. So I got to do the Mesa there in Otay. And then I also got to do the Otay Mountains. So, you know, tracking is just, I, I absolutely love it. You know, I, I put, I live in DC now, like outside of DC and I put together a little tracking course for my kids when they were like five and six. And I'm like, this is what we're looking for. This is what sign is. I did like a, a table so we could check how it, uh, it transitions with the weather and, and days. And I love that stuff, man. Dude, that is awesome. I, uh, yeah, I grew up just loving tracking, just kind of, uh, enthralled by it. Um, it didn't really have any practical experience with it, but I was just fascinated with it. And it comes into play big time in the third novel that I'm finishing up now. So part of that trip to South Africa was to confirm some things for the second book, but a lot of it was, and I did it in November of last year, um, was to go out and I was actually helping a, an anti-poaching unit, uh, train up on Glocks and M4s as there were new weapons for them. They hadn't used those before. Um, but it's always, they're, they're out there really protecting some of the last rhino on earth. So I wanted to go out there and help with that, obviously. But at the same time, I, uh, it, it wasn't entirely selfless. I wanted to, to pick their brains on tracking. Uh, and a lot of these guys that are working over there in South Africa now, um, have a long history. They're a little older. And so they grew up tracking animals. Then, then they caught the tail end of the bush wars. So in like the mid nineties, they caught the Namibia part of the bit of the bush wars. So then they were tracking humans, um, doing that man tracking there. And then they came home and the government was like, wow, now we have all these people with combat experience, man tracking experience, um, that are unemployed. What should we do with them? And a lot of them got jobs working for the national police force in what we'd think of as a uh, CSI, a crime scene investigation unit. And they took what they learned from both tracking animals and tracking humans uh, and applied them to an urban environment now. So really taking that psychology of tracking and not necessarily like tracking drops of blood to find a suspect or something, but uh, really outthinking 
that suspect. Like, where is he going to go next? Getting in his head, building that pattern of life and tracking him that way. And then they kind of aged out of that. So now they're getting up there. And now they're working for a lot of these private organizations that are um, helping uh, preserve the last rhinos out there. So it was really interesting to spend some time with those guys on the range, uh, on their home turf. Um, cooking some meat, having some beers under the stars in Africa in the bush. So I got to take a lot of that background and a lot of what I learned, not just about tracking, but the psychology of it, and weave that into the third novel. Yeah, you know, I've also noticed that. So your second novel is True Believer, and I do notice exactly what you're talking about now. Now you're like, oh, you know what, that's where that fits in, because now I'm at the point where your, uh, your character is in Africa, and the whole, you know, having a few drinks, eating a meat, and, you know, it's it's kind of a very real-life type uh, storyline. So I like that. It's really cool. Yeah, well, I got a lot of that just from being there. I wouldn't have got it from a Google search. So it's, uh, it's being there on the ground, talking to the trackers, talking to the professional hunters, talking to the locals. I had lists of things that I wanted to figure out how to, t- how to say in the different uh, local languages, of which there are many. Uh, I wanted to see what, how, what poaching is like up there. Um, how how they're they're feeding all the uh, the workers in these Chinese mining operations and the, the poaching's playing into that and just uh, just what does that look like on the ground? So got to weave all that, including the local beer, um, into <laughs> the, uh, into the storyline. So uh, you got to do the boots on the ground, I think, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing it for this next one as well. Well, you know, you brought up the point like like the trackers are almost like CSI because when you track humans, it's you could always tell uh, foot sign. You know, I used to carry a little laminated like sketch pad of the different type of foot signs. So when you're crossing over the border, a lot of the you could find certain smugglers, um, coyotes that are you can kind of track the same ones out because they're wearing the same shoes all the time. And every shoe has different marks. It's almost like fingerprints. So when I guess I'd imagine when you're over in Africa and you're tracking out these poachers, you can kind of track the same ones out just based off of their foot sign. That is interesting. I didn't ask that that question. Um, if the same ones keep coming back, but uh, but I'm sure they do until they get caught. Um, <laughs> they, they killed a couple right before I got there, and they have rules of engagement similar to what I think that a police department would have over here, or that we have even in the military, um, you know, to to, uh, to save your life or, or that of uh, someone to your right and left, really. Um, so they have similar rules of engagement uh, over there, but they did. They were engaged right before I got there and did put somebody down. Uh, got to see the pictures and the weapons that guy was carrying and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but interesting over there because the rhino horn is so expensive. It's uh, pound for pound. It's um, the most valuable um, illicitly moved substance, uh, more than cocaine, more than gold, more than diamonds, um, anything like that. So uh, there's a huge demand in Asia for it. Um, kind of like drugs in the United States, huge demand. So, so that demand is going to get fulfilled somehow. Uh, same thing with that rhino horn, even though it's just essentially a fingernail. Um, but they think it has magical, yeah. mystical over in Asia. So I'd say there's just this huge demand for it. So the the uh, the future of the rhino, uh, unfortunately, does uh, does not look good. Um, but uh, this last time we went over, just went over this summer, and we got to we darted one and uh, put a microchip in the horn and under the skin and took DNA samples, um, measurements, all that sort of thing. Um, and uh, it's just paralyzed for about five minutes and you do all that and then get out of there because it wakes up pretty angry. Um, 
but but uh, the whole South Africa is trying to put together a database of all living rhino uh, with their DNA so they can uh, keep track of where they are and just have a better, uh, also, you know, sadly enough to be able to use it better in court cases against some of the uh, the syndicates that are moving this rhino horn to Asia. Yeah, the, you, I like how you mentioned the syndicates because the syndicates are similar to our, the uh, the Mexican cartels and stuff. And rather than moving human bodies, well, obviously they're doing that too, but in narcotics, but to have something as price, you know, that they could sell for so much money, like rhino horns, it's just, you don't look at it that way. Everybody always thinks, you know, bodies and drugs, bodies and drugs. But a commodity like that to them is like, boom, you know what? It's a lot easier to move some rhino horns than it is, you know, the drug dogs aren't going to be hitting off of uh, rhino horns. You know what I mean? Right. You know, that's interesting. I should have asked about the dogs and rhino horn as well. But, you know, some of those same kind of rat lines or, uh, you know, paths that uh, are used for drugs are also used for weapons or also used for rhino horn or also used for human trafficking. So some of those same networks are used for both. And that comes into play in the third book, too. But uh, oh, the other point of that was that, you know, they're the, just like just like warfare. The enemy is always adapting. And same thing with these uh, with uh, the poaching syndicates and uh, then also with the, the anti poaching units. But what they thought for a while is that, hey, if we because rhino horn grows back just like fingernails do. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we sedate these rhino, we dart them, sedate them, cut these the horns off, um, and then store them somewhere where they're protected, then there'll be no reason for poachers to kill them. So what happened was poachers take a lot of, and it takes a lot of time, energy, effort to set all this up. They go into these preserves, they start tracking the rhino, they get to that rhino, and they find it, and it doesn't have a horn. So what do they do? They kill it anyway, so that the uh. next week or the next month when they come back, they don't that time, energy, and effort, uh, and take that risk tracking one that doesn't have a horn. So it's uh, it didn't really work as far as just cutting the horns off, which is uh, super super sad. Well, the other thing too is, you know, they look they don't have the same moral compass as like you and I and and the people you're you're over there observing. So it's like they don't mind doing that. Just hey, it's a rhino boom. Well, as with human life, as we know in most areas of the world, even human life doesn't have the uh, you know, the same value that it does here uh, in the United States and in the in the Western world, um, but it's hard for us to conceptualize that here over you know lattes in, in New York and Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, by our lens and uh, you know our our values to the rest of the world when we're when we're solving the rest of the world's problems, which has gotten us into trouble more than once. Yeah, and if if this isn't a main problem for us, if if we're not seeing it every day, uh, the only way you're going to hear about it is through stuff like this, just having conversations. And yep. hopefully you get a ripple effect where one person says, oh, you know what? I never thought about that. And they tell someone else. Yep. Or you can, without going there, not everyone can go there. I realize I'm very fortunate and that I get to go to these places and put boots on the ground and ask the questions uh, and that sort of thing. And that's why I'm very hesitant to make judgments and recommendations for uh, people in other parts of the world where I haven't been there, haven't put those boots on the ground, haven't talked to them, haven't taken the time to really study the situation in depth. Um, so I'm always hesitant to do that, but, uh, you know, <laughs> as we see from, uh, talking heads on TV and everyone who has any sort uh, of, whatsoever, uh, I'm in the minority on that, I think. Well, you know, and the thing is, if you could relay it like through your books or through your interviews and everything about your observations without having judgment, it, it you know, you're just saying, Hey, you know what, this is what's happening. You make your own decision. Yep. Exactly. It's having that information. And then, of course, you're using what we uh, our whole life experience, which hopefully 
gives us a little wisdom in order to uh, to to apply that to future situations and judgments and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I love exploring these things though in the pages of a, a fictional novel because uh, you can show different points of view. You can uh, you can show points of view you don't even agree with. Uh, make those the bad guy characters. Uh, uh-huh. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I, um, I'm really enjoying this. I'm not going to lie. I'm enjoying this book because, you know, I was, um, I was a big fan of the Gray Man series oh, with Mark so, Graney. Yeah, Mark, Mark Graney is amazing. Such a yeah. great guy. Nice. And those books are amazing. And, you know, in between books, I'm like, well, what am I going to, what am I reading now? What am I going to listen to? And I, I came across True Believer and I was like, this is, this is good. You know, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if it was going to be like another one of these you know, cookie cutter books. And it turned out to be like very unique. Thank you. Um, and that's one thing I enjoyed about it. And the, the bad guys, you know, it's greed, it's, 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 everything goes around at political power, but there was more behind, you know, the characters, you know, that's what I liked about it. And I'm finding the same thing with terminalists. I'm like, where is this going? And I'm like, I can't wait to find out where it's going. So you don't know the whole story ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. We're, but we're all on journeys, you know, we're all going to face adversity at some point. And if you haven't yet, you will. Um, and I wanted to do this for so long. Uh, and I, and I didn't really realize it at the time, but growing up in the eighties, um, when I naturally gravitated towards books that had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have one day, um, I got my early education in storytelling from those guys, guys like Tom Clancy, uh, Nelson DeMille, David Morrell, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, all these guys whose protagonists back then typically had Vietnam experience, either in special operations of some sort uh, or intelligence circles. Um, because back then I couldn't just Google Navy SEAL and have an unending supply of information pop up. Uh, you could cover everything that was written in the early 80s about SEALs in about an hour. You could read all of it. Uh, now, obviously, you couldn't even scratch the surface in an hour as to how much information about special operations and SEALs specifically uh, are out there. So. I read a lot of these books, and I always knew that after my time in the military, then I would write, write fiction, just like these guys. And uh, that early education in storytelling, uh, just enjoying them so much as I was growing up, and then adding my academic study of terrorism and insurgencies, um, and then the practical application of uh, the experiences on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan kind of all came to a head at the right time in the right place to inform the pages of a fictional thriller. So I think that's why it resonated with New York, because... Um, when I sent the, the terminal list to them, um, they got back right away and loved it and uh, wanted to, to do a book deal. And I think that's because I took the emotions uh, and feelings behind certain experiences downrange and applied them to a fictional thriller. So if it feels like the protagonist's feelings are, are real or coming from a real place, uh, that's because they are. And I think that's fairly unique in the space. I didn't have to to have to uh, interview someone to ask them how they felt about doing something, kicking in a door and doing the job or uh, coming home from a very intense deployment. Um, and then think about like how a character would feel. Now I, I just used how I felt in those situations and how it felt coming home and all that sort of thing and just applied those to the protagonist. So it's uh, my past definitely informs the writing, but I didn't, uh, didn't intend that when I started out, it just kind of happened that way naturally. Well, it's a technical expertise that goes around it, too. I mean, you, you said it right on. You don't have to think about what it felt like. You felt it. And it comes out, you know, on a paper, it, it really comes out. And, you know, as a veteran and, and you know, a lot of the other uh, associates of mine are veterans, law enforcement, everything, you could tell um, when someone's writing with 
kind of truth behind the fiction and it makes such a better story. I ah, appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I knew I was going to get the technical stuff you know, right. Well, I was going to check it though, because <laughs> I knew people with my background, they'd be looking, uh, try to find a mistake and there's probably something in there, but, um, I knew I wouldn't be putting a safety on a Glock, you know, or something like that or something atrocious. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my biggest pet peeve is TV and they pull out a Glock and all of a sudden you hear a, a hammer cocking or something and it's, you're like, yeah. come on. Exactly. <laughs> I try not to let that ruin it for me, but sometimes it does throw you off. And then in a, a book that you're loving, all of a sudden, you know, up comes a Glock and the person flips the safety off, you know, and it's like, oh, come on, buddy. <laughs> you were so close. You almost had it. Uh, so I knew I was going to get that stuff, you know, right or fairly close to right anyway. Um, but what I didn't anticipate was using all those feelings at the start. But when I started writing, I actually sat down and started typing away. Then right away, it became evident that, uh, hey, the power of this, uh, this story is really going to be those those emotions and those uh, those feelings behind my experiences downrange. Like that's what's going to give this thing life. Uh, and uh, yeah, it ended up being a very therapeutic process. Oh, writing is definitely... Now, I have not yet jumped into the fiction world, but my first book is basically my life story is nonfiction. And my next book is going to be on human trafficking. So that's one thing I wanted to kind of uh, – the writing process for you. I think I, I watched one of your interviews or listened to you about using Scrivener. Oh, yes. I just discovered Scrivener <laughs> for this third novel, and I'm so excited about it because you know the first one I used Word, and yeah, it was kind of a pain. Um, just scrolling and cutting and pasting and moving things around and, and all that. Um, but the second one was, oh my gosh, cause it's, it is so much longer and it is so much in depth and there are things happening all over the world, different times, different places. Um, and figuring out that flow through cutting and pasting and scrolling in word, um, was a little bit nutty. So, uh, I found Scrivener, which is awesome. It's like using word, but then you can press a button and it turns all your chapters into essentially post-it notes on your screen and you can drag and drop to change things around. And you can pull in research, you can pull in photos, videos, websites. Instead of me on the first one trying to think back, like, hey, where did I get that research? What website was that? Is it still in my history? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. It's all right in there, attached to your, your research is essentially attached to the chapters. And you can import and export from Word. It's uh, it's outstanding. Uh, yeah, I, I'm amazed with it. I, you know, I, I started using it halfway through the book, the first book, and then, because initially I had a big, uh, poster board, kind of like mind mapping that storyline out. And then it's like, wow, Scrivener, who came up with this? This is the perfect thing in the world. Genius. I know. I would have paid a lot more for it. If uh, you're an aspiring author out there, please buy a Scrivener. <laughs> and I'm not getting paid by them. I'm just saying, yeah, wow. Me neither, but I love it. But yeah, process-wise, so for the first one, I wrote down six or seven different ideas, like one-page executive summaries. And I chose the one that I thought would resonate the most with readers. Uh, and with publishers in New York. And that was the one that had the theme of revenge without constraint. And I chose that one because I thought that was the most primal, the most visceral, the most hard-hitting right out of the gate. Um, and then I, once I decided on that, that was a very clear choice. Uh, then I turned that one-page executive summary into an outline. And I didn't get caught up in figuring out every problem in the outline. If I came to something I couldn't figure out or some kind of an unknown, I just moved forward and uh, just put some question marks there, some X's or something, uh, just to mark it. Uh, and I, cause I didn't want to get bogged down and have uh, the whole thing thrown off the rails because I was trying to solve one problem. I knew it would come to me over time as I was writing, as I was thinking, I would just naturally solve that problem because I've been doing it aggressively on the battlefield for so many years where time is of the essence. 
Uh, now time is not, it's not, wasn't really, it wasn't really like that anymore. And I could, I could still solve problems. I could still solve them aggressively, but that's on the pages of a written political thriller. Um, and uh, no one's life is hanging in the balance. So, uh, so that really gives me a lot of, a lot of freedom to just move over things I couldn't figure out and then come back to them when they naturally, um, uh, were solved during the writing process. So I would fill in that outline and solve those problems until I got to about the 75% mark. And then it became uh, not efficient to do that anymore. And I just kept writing uh, in Word. So that's kind of how the writing process went for the, the first two. And then the second one, fairly similar, except the, sorry, the third one, um, fairly similar, except now it's in Scrivener. So it's a lot more organized. Hey, you know, one thing I do want to say is you mentioned political thriller. So a lot of people think they think revenge. The first thing you think is, hey, you know what? This is a punisher. He's just going to go and kill everybody. But I have to say your, your character was well reserved uh, rather than just, you know, killing everybody. There was more behind his targets. It wasn't just, hey, you know what? He's a bad guy. I'm going to kill him. Uh, that's what I liked about it. There was more of a storyline rather than just a whole hundreds of pages of shoot him up. So there was a lot behind it. I appreciate that. It's, uh, so there's a couple ways you can read it. Uh, and some people just grab it off the shelf and go on vacation and, and uh, escape into the pages, and it's a revenge thriller. Um, and that's one way. Uh, the other way, though, and really how I thought about it was that, hey, this is uh, about someone who's abandoning everything he's fought for and lived for his entire life. And he's becoming the insurgent and the terrorist that he's been fighting for the last, in that book, 16 years at war. And he's using the tactics and techniques of the enemy that worked so well against us in Iraq and Afghanistan on home soil. So, um, so I, so I thought of it really in that vein as I was writing and then it became something else as it got closer to the end and really look at it at another, another level. And it's really about a guy, a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan who brings those wars home to people who have been sending young men and women to their deaths for creeping up on 20 years now. So there's a couple of different ways you can uh, you can look at it, but I definitely didn't want it to just be you know this guy going out killing people. He had to have one. He had to have that reason. Um, he had to change somehow. So he had to have it. That's that without constraint part that uh, really got me. And the way I solved that problem was uh, from the church hearings in the in the 70s. And because in all these movies I watched growing up, there was always a protagonist that uh, that had nothing left to lose. You know, they always had that voiceover that would say that. And uh, I thought, well, there's always something left to lose. You could always die. Um, so in this one, he had to lose everything and actually think that he was dead as he went into battle, just oh, like yeah. I would with the code of Bushido, they would go into battle thinking they were already dead because that made them more effective and efficient warriors. So I thought, how do you do that to a modern day warrior? And that's where the testing of drugs on our nation's most elite soldiers came into play. Um, so he could go into battle thinking he was already dead. So he could abandon everything that he'd uh, lived for and fought for his entire life. And he could become that insurgent on home soil. So that's, uh, that was really the, the impetus behind, uh, behind the, the, uh, the drug testing in that first book. And from the church hearings, that's one of the things that came out of those in the seventies was that certain parts, certain elements of the, the federal government, um, tested human subjects. And they were typically people from mental institutions, mm -hmm. um, middles, university students, members of the military. Uh, so out of those hearings, there were some uh, uh, review boards that were put in place so that uh, there would not be unwitting human test subjects in the future. And uh, I just thought, hey, what if enough time has passed since the 70s, since those took place, and uh, somebody tries it again, uh, this time in the, in the war on terror? What would that look like? So um, that, that's, uh, that's how I solved that problem of having nothing left to lose in the first novel. 
Well, you know, as a military service member as well, you could always say, hey, you know what that third pill for the anthrax, what sure. is really in it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Were they all pills or were they shots? I've never shot. I don't, I don't remember because uh, – Jeez. I don't remember. I don't like to remember that thing. I just, yeah. I don't either. Cause I, I know I, I opted out of the third or the second one or whatever. I was like, they gave me the opportunity. I was like, I, I think I'm good. You know, right. the first one's <laughs> options, I think, but, oh, geez. Yeah. I don't even like to think. You know what? I'm going to think about that all day and out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, oh man. Well, um, I was going to go into first blood cause that the novel itself, cause you and I grew up around the same, almost the same era. Oh, you nice. know, it, and you know, the, um, but we're running out of time and I, w I did want to say, you know what, growing up in the eighties and nineties, you really didn't have a lot of opportunities to find out anything about our specialized units other than the Vietnam era books. Right. You know, mine was the whole long range reconnaissance patrol lerp books Yep. and yeah. you know, so, good luck, good luck finding a seals book back, seal books back then too. Yeah, but slowly but surely, they uh, they started coming on the scene. Mar Marcinko's book, and then uh, Patrick's yeah. book, the Point Man, and um, yeah, yeah, Element of Surprise was in there. So a few started coming on the scene um, slowly but surely as we got into the late eighties, early nineties, and then it's kind of started picking up steam. I guess when publishers saw that there was a market for it. But yeah, you're right. Seventies, eighties, up until the late eighties, there was hardly anything at all. Uh, so a lot of those, like I said, came from uh, the pages of fictional thrillers. Exactly. Well, I know you are a busy man, and we're rolling up on 30 minutes now. And so I want to have you back for your third book, if that's cool. Let's do it. Absolutely. Kind of throw you on a spot now. Um, sorry I acted too much like a fanboy today, but I, I love writing, and I love the whole process, and I love the fact that there's a decent books out there nowadays. Uh -huh. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I love writing. I love talking about books, so I'm up for it any time. That, uh, yeah, the third one should be out uh, in April of 2020. So very excited to get that one out there. And then in the next couple of weeks, I'll start working on book four. So let's go, go, go. Let's, let's get that book out there, okay? Come on. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> hey, now, are there any organizations you want me to give a shout out to or you want to give a shout out to? Sure, yeah. There's a, a National Ability Center is one here in Park City that's very near and dear to my heart. Um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, one of those is that uh, they do a lot with veterans, and they take veterans that are dealing with PTSD or with uh, um, uh, TBI or you know, missing arms and legs from Iraq and Afghanistan or training accidents or whatever it may be, um, bring them and their families here to Park City, and they get them outside and help the family bond, help them deal with what they're dealing with, um, taking them skiing, river rafting, um, mountain biking, rock climbing, horseback riding, all that sort of thing. So it's an amazing uh, organization. It's here in Park City, and uh, the Marriott family is very involved with it. So it's a, it's a, it's just an incredible group of people out there. Um, and then I had the opportunity to visit the UDT Seal Museum in Fort Pierce, Florida, for the first time uh, last week while I was on book tour. And what an amazing place for anybody that's interested in special operations, specifically seals. Um, I would say if you if you want to be a SEAL, check it out. If you are a SEAL and have not been, check it out. Learn our history. Um, and then if you have, have been a SEAL and are not anymore, uh, if you're a former frogman and have not been, um, definitely make the pilgrimage down there to, to Fort Pierce, Florida. They've done some amazing things that really connects us to that history and that legacy of those who have come before. Wow. I appreciate all you're doing for, uh, you know, outside of the service, you know, you're actually continuing your mission on. So even spreading awareness through fiction um, and through helping out with these, you know, even shout outs like that and just, you know, doing a good thing, man. I appreciate it. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Let's do it again soon.